The risks have inevitably gone up because the possibility that they might think that they could do this and succeed are greater than they, they were in the past. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. According to Princeton's Aaron Friedberg, the West's strategy of engagement with China has failed. More than three decades of trade and investment with the advanced democracies have left that country far richer and stronger than it would otherwise have been. But growth and development have not caused China's rulers to relax their grip on political power, abandoned their mercantilist economic policies, or accept the rules and norms of the existing international system. To the contrary, China today is more repressive at home, more aggressive abroad, and more obviously intent on establishing itself as the world's preponderant power than at any time since the death of Chairman Mao. So what went wrong? Put simply, the democracies underestimated the resilience, resourcefulness, and ruthlessness of the Chinese Communist Party. For far too long, Friedberg believes the United States and its allies failed to take seriously the party's unwavering determination to crush opposition, build national power, and fulfill its ideological and geopolitical ambitions. In his 2022 book, Getting China Wrong, Friedberg identifies the assumptions underpinning engagement, describes the counter-strategy that China's Communist Party rulers devised in order to exploit the West's openness while defeating its plans, and explains what the democracies must do now if they wish to preserve their prosperity, protect their security, and defend their common values. Today, I talk with Friedberg about the biggest Western misconceptions about China, the current state of the Chinese regime, both politically and economically, and what we in the West should be focused on in the coming years. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Aaron L. Friedberg is Professor of Political and International Affairs at Princeton University. Over the past two decades, he has written numerous books and articles warning of the dangers of an intensifying economic, military, and ideological rivalry between China and the West, including A Contest for Supremacy, China, America, and the Struggle for Mastery in Asia, Beyond Air-Sea Battle, the debate over U.S. military strategy in Asia, and Partial Disengagement, a new U.S. strategy for economic competition with China. His most recent book, published in 2022, is Getting China Wrong, which we'll discuss today. Aaron Friedberg, welcome to Acton Line. Thank you very much. So your latest book, which is Getting China Wrong, which is out in 2022, paperback was out late uh, last year, 2023. Aaron, what prompted you to write this book? What do you think we're getting wrong about China? What, what prompted me to write the book was years of <clears throat> observing and in varying ways participating in the debate over our 
China policy. Um, a degree of frustration, I have to admit, over time uh, in with what I saw as misperceptions and mistakes that were being made along the way. Uh, I don't know that there was any one particular uh, turning point in this. It's more an accumulation of things. Um, and the single most important thing that I think we've gotten wrong over the years is underestimating the resilience and the resolve and the ruthlessness of the Chinese Communist Party and its determination to hold on to political power. And I think a great deal else follows from that. And yet, over the years, our policy at times has been based on the assumption that the CCP would mellow and eventually go away. And obviously, that hasn't happened. Where do you think that assumption came from? Why was there this presumption that uh, either the CCP would mellow or that engagement in trade with China, their membership in the in the WTO would eventually mean some kind of moderation or at least a market change in the nature of the relationship between the United States and China and most of the West and China? I think it's a confluence of sort of theory and practice. Uh, on the practice side or the practical side, um, this policy or strategy that emphasized engagement uh, really takes hold in uh, its its current form in the aftermath of the Cold War. And really, as I describe in the book, it's in the early 1990s that the various arguments uh, that have been developed over the years to justify a policy of engagement with China emerge and, and take hold. And of course, that's a moment of triumphalism. Uh, the collapse of, of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the uh, fragmentation of the Soviet Empire, the fragmentation of the Soviet Union. Uh, this was a moment, it seems difficult to recall at times, when serious people like Frank Fukuyama argued that history was coming to an end and that liberal democratic capitalism had proven itself as the dominant form of political and economic uh, organization. Um, so it's things that are happening and watching these dramatic events in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, I think, encouraged people to believe that something similar might very well be just around the corner in China. Um, and then there's also theory, if you like, or belief uh, that certain things had to be true. Um, one in particular, one belief in particular, that uh, economic growth and the increase in incomes and the growth of the middle class uh, would lead inevitably to political liberalization in China, and that that's something that had happened previously in Europe in the 19th century, in Asia in the 20th century. And there were good, again, sort of theoretical explanations for why we might expect that to be true. Basically, um, to simplify, when people have the choice about Know, what cereal to buy or where to live or where to work, uh, they are eventually going to want to have a, a say in choosing their leaders. Uh, and again, this was something that had currently been proven by events. So it's it's that expectation as well. And the belief that China was already well launched on that path, despite, of course, what had happened in 1989 at Tiananmen, which ought to have suggested that perhaps things were not working uh, as we might have hoped. But there was a lot of a lot of optimism. I think there's one other factor I should mention, which is again starting in the early 1990s. There's a confluence of interests in the United States, in the West, interest groups 
that support a policy of extensive and intensive, particularly economic engagement with China, uh, because people stood to benefit from that. Trade would be beneficial to their interests. They would have an opportunity to sell their products into a very large Chinese market. Uh, they would also have the opportunity to take advantage of China's very large, relatively low-wage labor force to move some of their productive facilities into China. Uh, and for those reasons, you get a kind of strong lobby or group of lobbies that support engagement and continue to support it in some respects down to the present. If you look at the way the totalitarianism unraveled in the Soviet Union and Europe and the examples that you were pointing to, what was the uh, the base for the theoretical case that uh, similar changes could be anticipated in China? What made China different? Why do you think that theory didn't work out? What was characteristically different about China and its leadership in the Chinese Communist Party that prevented that from happening? Well, one thing that I think was important was the example of the Soviet Union. So the Chinese leadership observing what had happened to the Soviets was very determined that the same thing should not happen to them. And so from the beginning of this process of engagement, they're constantly uh, concerned about the possibility that engagement will undermine their, their power. Uh, and they're looking for ways to guard against that and to prevent that from happening. Uh, the CCP leadership, I think it's fair to say, has been obsessed with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that is certainly true of Xi Jinping. He's given speeches about it. They've held party conferences where they discuss the lessons of, of the Soviet case. Um, and so they've they've learned from that. Um, that's I think that's part of the explanation. Um, you know, I think uh, in part, perhaps as a result of that, uh, the CCP developed techniques for uh, controlling and, and uh, observing their population, which exceeded the capacities of, of the Soviets. That's partly a technological thing they had available to them possibilities for monitoring the communications of their people, for example, that the that the Soviets didn't have. So that that helped. The other thing, I guess, about China is in this 30 some year period that we're talking about, uh, China was on the uphill trajectory. It was growing very rapidly. Um, and that had begun uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, when Deng Xiaoping emerges as the new Chinese leader after Mao's death and begins what he calls his process of reform and opening up, so use of market mechanisms to stimulate growth. And he does it very deliberately in the hopes that by improving the livelihood of Chinese people, uh, it will be possible to uh, affirm their support for the Communist Party. And for a time, and arguably even down to the present, that's successful. By contrast, the Soviet system was in a, a prolonged uh, deterioration. It really, its growth slowed by the late 60s and early 70s. And then there ensued a period of a decade and more of economic stagnation. So the population became increasingly uh, disenchanted with the regime, and even the leadership of the Soviet Union began to become uh, demoralized. And down to the present, that has not been true 
in the case of China. Incomes have been rising. People have been supportive of the regime. <clears throat> the leadership has been optimistic and I think is still optimistic about its prospects. So they were going in different directions. The Soviet Union down, China up, at least for the time being. How important was that break from doctrinaire Marxism, you know, the full embrace of uh, Marxist economic thought that you saw in the Soviet Union that one could argue really laid the groundwork for its demise? You have in China this case where they've engaged in market liberalization, that they have opened up, that they trade with the rest of the world. Um, how how important was this abandonment of um, ideological Marxist economic doctrine? And how should it make us think about a communist party or something that still goes by the name of a communist party that from an economic perspective is really not communist anymore? Yes, um, that's extremely important. Their flexibility, uh, their ability to abandon or to substantially modify some portions of the doctrine that they had inherited is the reason that they're still around. I think by contrast, the Soviets were rigid, uh, didn't have the, the foresight, uh, didn't have the imagination to even consider the possibility of some of the reforms that have taken place in China until the very last minute. Gorbachev comes along right at the end, realizing that the Soviet system isn't working, that communism basically in its doctrinaire form isn't working and begins a series of desperate experiments with the economy and then also with the political system that lead very quickly to the unraveling and the collapse of the system. By contrast, the CCP leadership has been much more flexible. And that's really one of the most striking characteristics, I think, of the regime and its policies over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, willingness to experiment uh, and to move at least a certain degree, a certain uh, part of the way towards a true market-based system without ever going all the way, while maintaining political control, allowing market forces to operate uh, and to their to their benefit. That that is part of the reason why they were able to grow, grow so rapidly. The other part of it, and you, you mentioned this, um, is their willingness to be open to trade and investment with the rest of the world. Here too, the Soviets were doctrinaire down almost to the end. Um, believing that you know economic engagement with the capitalist countries would corrupt and subvert the rule of the of the Soviet Communist Party, um, and they really isolated themselves for most of the Cold War. I mean, we did too by refusing uh, to a significant degree to trade and invest with them, uh, but they brought it on themselves. Whereas in the case of China, the regime was very willing to engage with the rest of the world economically. Again, once Deng Xiaoping comes in, uh, recognizing that this is a way of getting capital, it's a way of getting technology, and very importantly, as China grows, it's a way of having access to an external market into which China can sell its goods and, and profit as a result. So a willingness to engage with the rest of the world, which the Soviet system, again, didn't have almost to the end. They start to because they're desperate, except some loans from the West, um, but very little, and it's too little and too late. But from the beginning, the CCP leadership recognizes that doing this is potentially dangerous. Um, Deng Xiaoping famously said in conversation with some of his colleagues at the beginning of this process, uh, when, you, when you open the windows, uh, fresh air comes in, but so do flies. 
So the fresh air is the engagement with the markets of the world and all of that uh, that that can bring with it. The flies are the corrupting and dangerous ideas of liberal democracy. And he was alert to that. And he and his successors have uh, adopted and adapted over time a mix of policies meant to maintain control of the population. And here, too, they've been very experimental. Uh, they've been willing to try different things, always, though, with the ultimate goal of maintaining political control. And really, they've had uh, a package of policies, if you like. And the, at different times, there's been greater or lesser emphasis on, on different parts of this. One, obviously, repression. Uh, they've never abandoned that. And to the contrary, they've kind of refined the techniques and the technology of repression over time. Um, two is uh, co-optation. So in particular, economic co-optation, offering the promise of a better life. If people will uh, remain loyal to the regime, they will benefit and profit and their lives will become better over time. That's been true up until now, but maybe it's not going to be true in future. And then the third element in this program is nationalism. And here, too, there's a variation, a variant from uh, Marxism in its in its classical form, which is anti-nationalist and purports to be internationalist. Uh, and here, too, Deng Xiaoping is the, is the great innovator. He, in fact, says in conversation with some of his generals after Tiananmen in 1989, our big mistake, the, the failing of the last decade or so, has been uh, not to maintain, um, he doesn't use the phrase, but hearts and minds of our people, in particular our younger people. And he says the way that we have to do that is by encouraging a sense of patriotism. And China begins a program of what comes to be referred to as patriotic education, starts in the 1990s, it's expanded and, and grown over the years, and that is a form of nationalist uh, indoctrination. Party presented a particular version of China's history in which uh, the villains were the Western powers, the capitalists who, going back to the 19th century, uh, had intruded on China and caused disorder and, and suppressed the Chinese people. And the heroes of the story are the Chinese Communist Party, which liberated China, created the modern People's Republic of China, and which, in the party's telling, uh, is still essential to China's future prospects. And they've indoctrinated successive generations of children and older people with those beliefs. And if we've learned anything since the end of the Cold War, it's that nationalism is an extraordinarily powerful force. And the CCP has captured it and used it for its purposes, even though you know, technically that was at odds with Marxist doctrine. How are things going in China right now, both politically and economically? And I, I guess the maybe even the more important part of that question is, how do we know and how reliable is any of the information we get? I know some of the China scholars that I read, particularly on the economic front, are always very quick to caveat any of the stories about the performance of China's economy, which is if you can believe the numbers from China, which you can't, here's what's going on. Yeah. So what sense do we have of how things are going uh, both politically, the kind of package of policies that you've described to maintain the 
political rule of the Chinese Communist Party and economically and what level of confidence do we have in this analysis based on the information walls that exist between us and them? It's a very good question. Let's start with the political part. Um, we don't know much about what goes on at the very highest levels of the system. Um, it's very closed, uh, very difficult to, to know exactly what's going on. And I, I suspect it's become even more so because it appears, and I think it is the case, that power has become even more tightly concentrated into the hands of a tiny group and really into the hands of a single man, Xi Jinping. Uh, and so we don't, we don't know. Um, there is no evidence that I find persuasive that's emerged over the last several years of any kind of dissension or division at the upper levels of the party. Uh, you occasionally hear stories uh, that are second and third hand of dissatisfaction on the part of some uh, people in the in the elite. Uh, but that, as far as we can see, that has no practical manifestation. You know, at times, including when Xi Jinping first came to power uh, back in 2012, 2013, there were rumors that there were coups and, and later that he had made various people very unhappy because of the purges that he's undertaken, um, and that therefore there must be opposition to him. And yet, as a practical matter, there is no evidence of that. Doesn't mean that there couldn't be, or that things could change perhaps rapidly. But for the moment, Xi Jinping is, is clearly in charge, and there's no evidence of any dissent. And in fact, he's tightened his grip. You know, he uh, essentially appointed himself to a third term as as the party leader uh, in in 2022, um, and there was no opposition to that. Moreover, as part of that process, he kind of swapped out people in the leadership who were not as clearly beholden to him and replaced them with people who were. So he he seems to control from the top down. The next set of questions about what's going on politically, I guess, has to do with evidence of broader dissent or unhappiness. And there again, um, there is little but not zero evidence that people in China uh, have been unhappy with various policies that the party has pursued. And I think the most dramatic example of that gives some evidence of that uh, unhappiness is what happened at the end of 2022, when the party uh, suddenly abandoned its so-called zero COVID uh, policy. And after the pandemic began, uh, the party cracked down and imposed uh, lockdowns in Chinese cities. And uh, they do seem to have escaped the worst uh, effects of the first waves of the virus. Um, but then later, when some of these somewhat less potent but more transmissible, uh, transmissible variants emerged in 2022, 2021-22, um, that didn't seem to be working. They cracked down even harder. Uh, and as they did so, there began to be some indications of real unhappiness. Um, and here, it's important to say that this is, for the most part, it's not really, it's not political dissent. It's not people saying we need multi-party democracy and get rid of the regime. It's people crying out almost in desperation, 
because of the terrible straits in which they find themselves as a result of the party's brutal and not very effective attempts to control the spread of the disease. Um, you know, there were videos of uh, taken from the balcony of apartments, I think in Shanghai, where at night people would come out onto their balconies, apparently, and bang pots and pans, and you could hear it across the city. There were even a few cases of brave souls who unfurled banners that were critical of, of Xi Jinping, of the regime. Um, and as a result of that, apparently, the regime turned on a dime, abandoned this policy that it had been proclaiming as a great success in comparison to the fecklessness of Western democracies and dropped these COVID lockdowns and essentially let the virus burn its way through the population. We don't know exactly how many people died, but it probably was a million plus. Uh, but they abandoned it. They abandoned the policy because of popular un, uh, unhappiness and also because of the economic effects of these of these lockdowns. So there's a recent example in which at the extreme, uh, if people are sufficiently unhappy, they may express that and it could conceivably have an impact on policy. But that's not what's going on day by day. Um, you know, 10 years ago, maybe when Xi Jinping came in, there might have been more instances in which people posted things on social media that were critical. Uh, that's really been squelched. I think uh, Xi has, has stamped out all of the visible manifestations of, of popular unhappiness, with the exception of these occasional extraordinary events. So. Xi Jinping's in charge, the party is in charge, and the party state apparatus appears to be rigidly in control. One thing to mention here, because uh, you, you brought up the issue of how do we know, um, into the first decade of the 21st century, the party, uh, the party state apparatus would issue statistics every year recording the number of, of so-called mass incidents. And these are protests, demonstrations of, over I don't know, over 100 people or over 1,000 people. I don't remember which it was. Almost all of these have to do with wages that haven't been paid or uh, protests by farmers who are being moved off their land so somebody can build an apartment complex there. Um, and so they recorded these. And when the number of mass incidents in a year reached, I think it was 72,000, uh, they stopped reporting the statistics. And there are people who have been trying to, you know, reconstruct those statistics, and they showed the curve continuing to go up, at least uh, as of a few years ago. I haven't seen most recently, but we don't we don't really know. But there are instances in which people turn out and complain about something that's going on in their in their neighborhoods, basically. As far as what's happening economically, um, there's no doubt that China's growth has slowed. Um, you know, they went through a couple of decades of double digit growth, 10 percent growth or around there, which is just extraordinary. And especially as the volume of the, the size of the Chinese economy grows, 10 percent year on year is just an enormous increment each year of additional growth. Um, that period of rapid growth has come to an end. It's not just in the last few years, but over the last decade. So we went down six, seven percent. Um, and it has come down even further. And the party has acknowledged that, uh, although they continue to sort of cook the books and make claims about 
sort of steady growth that's gradually coming down in a very systematic way. Um, there, I don't think many Western observers are confident anymore of the official statistics. They probably should have been more wary of them all along, but I think there's a growing awareness that, that they can't be relied upon. Um, but we don't know exactly how slow China's growth is at the moment. And more importantly, I think, is the question of what the trajectory is going to be going forward. Um, it's possible that, in fact, China's growth has dropped pretty dramatically. Uh, and it's not 6 7%. Maybe it's 2 3%. And also, it's possible that it may not go back up uh, very much. And so China may now have entered into a period of really quite slow growth. I mean, compared to Western advanced industrial societies, 2 3% looks great. But compared to China's recent past, that's quite slow. Um, but the the party is not giving information that would confirm that. Um, one thing that's notable is that the leadership, Xi Jinping in particular, has recently said, um, in effect, growth isn't everything. Uh, the purpose of our economic policy or the purpose of our national policy is not just to increase GDP year on year. Yes, we're improving the well-being of the Chinese people, but we shouldn't be obsessed with these growth targets, which is how the party measured itself in the past. But that's that's quite notable, saying to people, listen, uh, don't expect that we're going to be able to deliver quite what we did in the past. But there are big issues, and perhaps we can talk about those, as to whether uh, the party is going to be able to come up with a sustainable growth model to replace the one that they've been using for the last several decades. The last thing I wanted to mention, though, is, um, and it, it's, again, an issue about which there are real questions and on which the data is not reliable, is unemployment, and particularly youth unemployment. Um, so I believe as of last year, uh, by official measures, something like 20 or 21% of young people below a certain age unemployed. Um, and of course, that's, that's a huge number. And there too, the party stopped reporting the statistics because that's obviously not a very successful performance. So we don't know for sure, but we have reason to think that at least for the moment, there's high unemployment. That would be particularly in cities. Another thing that I don't think we have adequate information on is really the, the quality of life outside of the cities in the countryside. And remembering that you know, a substantial fraction of China's population is still rural. Um, it's it may be half. I don't. Uh, it's like six hundred, maybe seven hundred million, which would be about half. Um, and overall, quality of life in the countryside has been lower than in the cities. Um, and there's reason to think that as growth slows, and particularly growth slows in the cities, to which many people from the country had flowed in order to work, um, those people are going to be coming back to the countryside uh, without jobs, without incomes. The quality of life is, was never great. It was never as high in the countryside as in the city. But if things are slowing down overall, probably even worse in the countryside. And there, too, it's hard to get reliable information because the regime doesn't want people on the outside to see their problems. I unpack what you referenced just a few minutes ago with the 
a sustainable growth model for China going forward. So looking at the explosion of growth that they got after liberalizing markets and, and opening up trade with the rest of the world, you know, they get this high growth. It has now started to stagnate. What do you think the prospects are that they're able to uh, land upon some kind of a successful model that allows them to grow and then head off uh, a lot of the economic concerns that you were just outlining and potentially the political downstream concerns from those economic problems. That's really the, you know, this, well, 64 billion is too small. Yeah, That's trillion. Really uh, <laughs> and it's probably more than that uh, question. So, and that is a, has to be a central, maybe the central preoccupation for the leadership right now. Um, just to back up a step, you know, thinking about how China was able to be as successful as it was in sustaining growth over a long period of time, um, I think there's general agreement that um, the model of growth that China adopted and pursued over a period of decades relied very heavily on really on two things. One was enormous increments of investment and particularly investment in physical infrastructure. So roads, bridges, railways, but also apartment complexes, whole cities, whole towns built uh, not primarily to serve the needs of the population, but to employ people and to uh, use the resources that are being generated by China's growing uh, manufacturing base. So enormous increments of investment and also very large increments of net exports. So they're they're pumping out exports to the rest of the world. Um, the thing that they have not done, at least to the same degree as advanced industrial societies, is make the conversion to a cons uh, consumption-driven economy. Um, that's basically what's happened in all the advanced economies of the world. They've gone through a period when they had very high investment, and then the investment tapered off, and consumption grew as the population became more wealthy and had a larger share of the total output. And that's how they've sustained steady but lower rates of growth. Um, so two, two things have happened. One, you can't keep pumping more and more into investment. At some point, you know, the returns on investment go down, and that's clearly been happening in China for a while. You know, the, the last bridge or the next bridge doesn't add very much to your total productivity and output. Uh, and if you keep building them, eventually you're, you're just burning money. Well, I know I've seen uh, the videos too of some of these uh, high rise constructions. I'm never sure which cities they're in, but I know I've seen videos of some of them even being um, imploded and, uh, and taken down that they're, they're never, never finished or at least never occupied. Yes. I saw it. Maybe it was the same video. I saw it yesterday. Yes. I don't yeah, know what probably the source was, yeah. is or how, how recent it is, but they're blowing up whole, looks like whole portions of cities uh, because apparently they overbuilt. We know they overbuilt and somebody decided eventually it was better to get rid of the things than just to leave them sitting there. So there's been this question about when and how um, investment was going to slow down. Uh, and China's been going through this property or real estate crisis in the last couple of years. Uh, people have anticipated this sort of bubble bursting 
for some time. And now it seems actually to have burst. So prices, value of apartments uh, no longer going up. It's coming down. Um, so they seem to have reached the limit of this investment, heavily investment-driven growth. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, part, in part, that appears to be the result of deliberate government policy. Until recently, the government seemed to have been afraid, really, to take the steps that it would need to take to burst that bubble. And so they haven't. And so it's continued to get bigger and bigger. Now they seem willing to kind of stand back and let it deflate. And the question will be, well, where are those resources going to go if it's not into yet more investment? The other thing um, that they're concerned about is whether they can continue to rely on the rest of the world to absorb greater and greater quantities of their, basically of their manufactured goods. Um, and here too, at some point there's a limit because the, popula the population of the world is only so many billion people and China can pump out more and more washing machines, but at some point markets are, are saturated. Um, moreover, at least in the last several years, there's also been the question of whether the advanced democracies are going to be willing indefinitely to continue to absorb those those exports and we're seeing a you know a crisis that's unfolding now specifically focused on on electric vehicles which the chinese have been manufacturing now in very large numbers and which they appear to be unloading on uh, european markets in particular in in huge volumes um and which if the europeans don't do anything uh will undercut and may destroy Europe's uh, nascent electric vehicle uh, manufacturing industry. And similar things have happened in the past, for example, with solar panels. Um, the CCP regime subsidizes the manufacture of certain goods so they can be sold on global markets at undermarket prices. That destroys other manufacturers and the Chinese manufacturers dominate the market. Um, so the old model is bumping up against its limitations. I think that the preferred um, approach that the regime is following, I should, I should say one other thing, which is <clears throat> it's been evident for a while that this limit was going to be reached. And Western economists and Chinese economists to a degree, and even some people in the CCP regime going back a decade or so, acknowledged this. Uh, Wen Jiabao, the premier under Hu Jintao gave a speech in 2007 in which he said, you know, the, our existing model is unsustainable, unbalanced, uh, it's un, the four uns, I don't remember what the others were, but he's saying we need, we need something new. I mean, he, didn't, he didn't come up with it, um, but there's been a recognition of this. And there really were two possibilities. One was to do what all the Western economists and, you know, the World Bank and other Western-based economic institutions we're saying, which is liberalize. You know, you've gone a certain distance down the road towards a market-based economy. Keep on moving in that direction. Get the state more and more out of the economy. Um, eventually, uh, relax controls on capital movements. Let, let the currency values be determined by market forces. Uh, keep, allow the private sector to expand. Do what we thought. China was going to do 
20 some years ago when we let him into the World Trade Organization. And people have said repeatedly until very recently, you know, they really have no choice. They've kind of bumped up against the limits of this old model. Now they're going to have to do what we said to do all along. Well, not so fast. Um, what the regime seems to be headed towards is a different approach. And it's one that I think emphasizes uh, technological innovation, um, perhaps above all, any other factor, pushing technological innovation, pushing what some refer to as the fourth industrial revolution, robotics, artificial intelligence, um, to obtain increasing inc increments of productivity. So increase the output per person that the economy can generate, even as that working age bulge that drove the first phases of China's growth back to the 70s and 80s begins to shrink. So technological innovation as the key to sustaining economic growth by increasing productivity. I think that's really the core. And I believe there's, there are, well, there are at least two other elements. One, the party keeps saying that it's going to increase domestic consumption. They keep declaring this as a goal. Um, they have not been very successful in getting there. And I think part of the reason is that if they really were serious about it, it would mean shifting a significant portion of China's total output into the hands of private citizens and private actors, and that that threatens the, the party's monopoly on political power. That has to be at least part of the reason why they just haven't, haven't done that more, more dramatically. Um, so what I think they, yes, they would, they will still try to do that and they probably will make some progress on it, but it's technological innovation and continuing to push exports, push exports into the advanced industrial markets for as long as those countries will allow you to do it. And that's what they're trying to do now to keep growth healthy. But the other piece, which I think is a longer term element in their strategy, is to seek out and develop other markets, in particular in the developing world, in the so-called global south. I think Chinese economic strategists hope that in the long term, so over decades, if uh, the global south or parts of it develop, and as incomes rise there, this can become a new or an expanding market for Chinese output that will eventually reduce the reliance on the West uh, and increase China's um, engagement with and reliance on the markets of countries which may be aligned with it politically and in other ways as well. So I think that's that's the strategy. Investment uh, to, or rather investment in technology to increase productivity and shifting the focus of China's uh, exports towards markets which are not saturated with their goods. Plus, yes, we want to increase domestic consumption, but as I said, there seem to be political obstacles to doing that very fast. Um, whether that's going to succeed or not is another question. Um, for the moment, it's it's mixed. And I think the significance of technology in this plan uh, is one of the reasons why uh, the regime has been so sensitive to the beginning of serious controls on technology exports. That is what they're really worried about and what they would like to head off 
because that strikes right at the heart of this long-term economic strategy. Can you briefly describe China's Belt and Road Initiative and how is that going for them currently? Belt and Road Initiative, something that was announced by Xi Jinping in 2013 um, and which has taken shape uh, over time. Initially, it appeared to be uh, primarily an infrastructure development program of massive proportions. So building bridges, railroads, pipelines that extended outwards from China uh, overland uh, across Eurasia, and then building ports and expanding China's maritime marine and so on uh, down through the um, through the Indian Ocean, around to the Persian Gulf, around the waters of Africa. So a massive infrastructure program. Um, and the purposes of that appear to have been first, uh, although I don't think primarily, but to uh, find an outlet for China's accumulation of capital as a result of running these massive surpluses, uh, to uh, basically a full employment plan for China's construction industry. So yeah, if they're building up to the point where they can't build any more bridges and roads in China, we're going to build them in Africa or in other places. So partly, I think, for economic reasons in that sense. I believe the purpose has also been in part strategic um, to increase um, connectivity between China and the rest of the world so as to uh, increase China's defenses against the possibility of being blockaded and potentially cut off in the context of a conflict with with the United States. And the overland transport routes, I think, are intended to to help in that regard, although they don't solve the problem. And the, the, you know, the maritime portion of the Belt and Road um, also, I think, has, has strategic motivations. It puts China in control of ports that run from its own uh, coasts all the way out to the mouth of the Persian Gulf, around the Indian Ocean, around the periphery of, uh, of Africa, into the Mediterranean and into the uh, Atlantic coasts off, off Europe. It doesn't provide them an absolute assurance that they can get what they want in the event of some kind of crisis or confrontation. But being in control of that, I think, increases their sense of security. Um, so that's been that's been the plan. Um, it's pretty clear that this has run into difficulties. Um, first, it appears that there isn't as much money available as there might have been once, and partly due to the slowdown in China's growth. Um, so they can't just keep pumping out money and lending it to other countries and then, you know, uh, getting it repaid in one way or another. Um, so it's it's partly that. I think there's also begun to be something of a pushback uh, against some aspects of this of this project uh, because it's involved countries that are borrowing money from China in uh, so-called debt traps. This idea of debt trap diplomacy: China lends you money. You use the money to pay a Chinese company to build a port. Um, then you have to repay it. If you can't repay it, you may have to hand over the control of the port or repay the Chinese company in uh, natural resources, for example. And that has been part of the 
part of the program, and that's attracted attention. People in the West have tried to call attention to it, but people in some parts of the developing world that have been on the receiving end of this have also begun to notice that the effects are not uh, entirely positive. So there's there's become more resistance to it. So less money, more resistance. Uh, but I don't think the idea is dead. Uh, they still have need for that infrastructure. But also, it looks like the Belt and Road program was always more than just an infrastructure program. It was intended to gain access to other societies, particularly in the developing world, um, to establish business relationships between Chinese companies and local companies, to establish political connections between local political figures and the Chinese party state, and to gain access and influence in that way. Um, in the case of developing countries, this is particularly evident in, in Africa, to uh, cultivate rising elites by bringing people back to China to study, whether it's military officers, police, political figures, media, um, and in that way to extend China's influence in the developing world. And that seems to be going apace. You know, that's relatively inexpensive uh, by comparison. I guess the one other thing to mention, and it's somewhere in between these, these old-fashioned you know, bridges and tunnels and this, the subtle people-to-people uh, diplomacy, and that's the um, infrastructure for telecommunications. And there, uh, Chinese companies have been very successful. They were early on the scene. They offered uh, cell phone systems in places where they hadn't existed before, and they offered cell phones uh, at prices that were very competitive. And so they've built a not trivial portion of the IT networks of many countries in the developing world. And they're continuing to uh, build those out. And that makes commercial sense, but it also gives the Chinese party state some access to information. Uh, it may enable the uh, elements of the party state to surveil uh, the local populations or political leaders. Uh, Chinese companies have been building uh, so-called smart cities. So networks of CCTV cameras and uh, artificial intelligence to identify individuals and so on, and offering this to often uh, not very democratic regimes in some of these countries as a way of ensuring their own security. But of course, it also gives China access to information about those societies. So those things are going on, the sort of the soft and then the IT, the high-tech infrastructure, even if the pace at which they're building this big, heavy stuff has slowed down. A lot of people go to the Cold War analogy to help us understand our current relationship with China or other nations' relationship with China. And I, I'm of the personal opinion, I think that it's helpful insofar as it goes, but it fails in a lot of important ways. But um, use that only here as a framing to talk about uh, a foreign policy question. You know, we we're not engaged in a hot war with China, at least you know certainly not yet. Um, there is, of course, the we hear continually about the prospect of China would like to um, absorb Taiwan. There's questions of whether or not the United States would come to the defense and aid of Taiwan. Um, what do you think the prospects are for some kind of a hot conflict between 
either China and the United States or China and the West more generally? Well, um, if I could just first on this comparison to the Cold War, and I agree with you, it's it's useful up to a point that breaks down. But, you know, comparisons are useful both for what they reveal of what's similar, but also what they illuminate about what's different. So um, I've never understood why people were so averse. Well, I think I know why people were mm-hmm. so averse even to talking in this way. But certainly if you look at uh, if a Cold War, maybe with a small C and a small W, is a rivalry between uh, at least two countries and maybe two blocks that plays itself out across a whole array of domains. So diplomatic, economic, technological, military, ideological. Um, this is a this is a Cold War. Uh, I think the CCP leadership certainly sees it in that way, even though they busily accuse people in the West who are advocating stiffer policies for dealing with them of being cold warriors or having a cold war mentality. That's they they don't want us to have a cold war mentality because they don't want us to be competing even more vigorously with them. There clearly are differences. People have noted these, not least the degree of economic interdependence uh, between us and them, which, as I said earlier, was not the case with with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, capital C, capital W. So it's similar in certain respects, different in others. The question of whether the Cold War becomes hot, um, it's obviously, it's a, it's a real one. Um, you can't eliminate that as a possibility. I guess I should say there are other things short of that which are beginning to happen. Um, essentially proxy conflicts where we on the one side and maybe our allies are supporting one party and China is perhaps supporting other parties which are engaged in conflict with the people who are relying on us. Um, That's essentially what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, Russia is getting a lot of support from China, maybe not large quantities of weapons, but in economic terms, China is critical to maintaining uh, Russia's economy and also to its ability to build weapons that rely on semiconductors, which they're importing in large quantities from sort of third parties. They're being shipped through uh, Kazakhstan or uh, Malaysia or something like that, but they're coming from China and winding up in in Russia. in, in the Middle East now, uh, China is the largest um, <clears throat> importer of Iranian oil, even though there are embargoes that have been imposed on, on Iran. Uh, the Chinese have found ways of circumventing those. Um, and of course, Iran is supporting, self-supporting various other groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis. Um, and that keeps allies and friends of the United States tied up in conflict and distracts the United States from other issues, particularly in the Asia Pacific. So I think we're we're close to being in proxy conflicts right now, uh, even though American forces on the one hand and Chinese forces on the other are not directly engaged. But what about the possibility that they might come directly into, into collision? Uh, and here, as you said, the, the scenario that everybody is focused on is Taiwan. Uh, and with good reason, if you had to pick one 
place where the odds of direct confrontation between the China between China and the United States are not trivially small, it would be over Taiwan. Um, but how do we assess the current risk, and is it increasing or is it de decreasing? Um, so I would say two things to start. One is, uh, in my view, there's little question that the risk is increasing and has been increasing over time. And that's both because China's military capabilities have grown. So 20 and 30 years ago, China really didn't have the capacity to even take a shot at conquering and dominating Taiwan. And so the likelihood that they would try was vanishingly small. Uh, their military capabilities have grown enormously since then. Uh, so the risks have inevitably gone up because the possibility that they might think that they could do this and succeed are greater than they they were in the past. And that's that trend is going to continue uh, because China is continuing to pour resources into its military. And some portion of that is focused on on Taiwan and preparing for a Taiwan contingency. The other reason why I think one needs to be more concerned about the prospects for conflict over Taiwan is what's happened on Taiwan over this same period of time. Um, again, go back to the 90s. Uh, the CCP leadership had some reason to hope that they might be able to persuade people on Taiwan uh, or some political parties on Taiwan to move closer and closer uh, to maybe accept, you know, one country, two systems, or some kind of arrangement that would give the mainland effective control over over Taiwan. Um, but that prospect, I think, has gone by the boards because of the evolution of Taiwan's polity and the attitudes of people on Taiwan towards the mainland. The numbers of people on Taiwan who say they still want unification have dwindled almost to nothing. The numbers of people who want to maintain the status quo have grown. The very small number of people who say they want actual independence. But the trends are not favorable to the CCP. And this recent election is just further confirmation of that. The uh, DPP party being winning the presidency for the third time, which is unprecedented. And DPP has been uh, of the uh, Taiwanese major Taiwanese political parties the strongest opponent of any suggestion of accepting reunification or unification with the mainland, um, and so that's an indication of political sentiment, and that's worrisome uh, from Beijing's perspective. Um, so, is this all going to blow up? I think there has been a tendency in the last couple of years in the United States, in particular to fixate on this scenario, um, perhaps to a greater degree <clears throat> than it deserves. I mean, accepting what I said earlier, that the risk is growing over time. You know, some people were saying, including some people in the US military, that uh, the risk of war would increase dramatically in 2027 because the CCP leadership had identified that year as, uh, the one at which they would achieve uh, certain milestones in the buildup of their military capabilities. And that was interpreted as uh, an indication that they intended, once they got to that point, to immediately use force against Taiwan. I think that was a misunderstanding of the meaning of those, uh, of those goalposts in the rhetoric of the party. Um, I think the likelihood 
in the near term that the CCP leadership is going to initiate uh, conflict with Taiwan is probably still pretty low, if only because the risks of doing that are so large. Nobody knows once a war begins how it's going to evolve. And if China uses force against Taiwan, they have good reason to think that the United States would become engaged. And if that happened, China and the United States might, in fact, be involved in a hot war. And the consequences of that are just incalculable. I mean, even if there weren't uh, nuclear exchanges, there'd be massive disruptions to trade and huge costs for, for everybody. It isn't to say that the Chinese leadership wouldn't be willing to pay that price if they absolutely felt they had to, uh, if they felt that they were going to be humiliated in some way, that Taiwan was going to declare independence, maybe they would take that risk. Uh, but I think the likelihood that they would do that from kind of a cold start is pretty low. And perhaps we fixated on that uh, to an excessive extent. Uh, I do think the, from the CCP leadership's point of view, um, you know, winning without fighting, this idea from Sun Tzu's art of war, is still the desired outcome, even though the formula for doing that uh, is becoming less and less clear. Because the last thing I would say is there are contingencies between you know, whatever it is we're calling the current uh, status quo, which is not exactly peace, but not hot war between the mainland and Taiwan, and you know, World War III, in which the United States is directly engaged in conflict with China, in which China might use force, displays of force in limited increments to try to put greater and greater pressure on Taiwan, and also to try to put pressure on everybody else, including us, by conveying the message that if we're not careful, if we don't restrain Taiwan or force Taiwan to do things that they don't want to do in dealings with the mainland, then all bets are off and, and China may do things that will result in, in conflict. You know, we've seen, going back, for example, to August 2022, a former Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and the very large-scale military exercises that China undertook at that time, a ratcheting up of these displays of force. Um, in the past, if you go back to the 90s, uh, China displayed its displeasure with political developments on Taiwan by doing pretty dangerous things like launching unarmed ballistic missiles into the waters off Taiwan that forced uh, disruptions in maritime traffic. They haven't quite done that recently, but they have much more capability to do things like that. Or, and this is the scenario that I think some professionals have become more concerned with, uh, imposing some kind of blockade. Um, they wouldn't declare it as a blockade because that's an act of war, international law, but doing things to disrupt air and maritime traffic into Taiwan on a sustained basis that would impose real economic costs on what is, after all, an island that relies on imports of many things to sustain its uh, its livelihood. Um, so that would be an intermediate scenario, one in which China hadn't fired a shot necessarily, certainly hadn't fired a shot at Americans, but they were doing things that imposed greater and greater costs on the people of Taiwan, and which put the friends of Taiwan, including the United States, in a position of having to decide if they were willing to take the next step and contemplate the use of force to break a blockade like that. 
that I think is a, that's a worrisome, to me, a more worrisome scenario than tomorrow waking up to find that the PRC is trying to invade Taiwan. You've mentioned how we've talked a lot about that potential uh, risk in, in Taiwan. What do you think is the biggest risk posed by China that we're not talking enough about? Well, it's hard to identify the one that we're not talking enough about, because in contrast to the past, people are talking about everything under the sun. Um, what do you think is not getting enough attention then? I guess the, uh, you know, the economic, technological and kind of political warfare challenges that China poses are, I think, in proportion to the military threat, they may even be more important. And yet when you look at least at the American system, at the U.S. government, the proportion of the resources of the U.S. government that are devoted to thinking about and dealing with the military threat in relation to all of those other things is wildly uh, uneven. And that's because we have a defense department, we have big uh, armed services and so on. We don't have a department of political warfare or counter-political warfare. We don't have a department of economic warfare. And yet, I think the the threats or the challenges that China is posing to the United States and to the West <clears throat> in each of those domains are significant and growing. Um, political warfare, uh, the extent to which the CCP, through the use of its so-called United Front uh, organizations and tactics, has succeeded in gaining access to elites and influential people in advanced democratic societies throughout the West, including in the United States, and are trying to use that access to shape the perceptions and ultimately to shape the policies of people in democratic countries. That's something that people in the West were not paying attention to until the last I don't know, five, six years. And that kind of burst into view because of things that happened in Australia in 2017, um, but that activity had been underway for decades. So we're we're still wrestling with the full extent of that activity. It poses real challenges to us because uh, it takes advantage of what we regard as our greatest strength, which is our openness, and seeks to exploit that openness and turn it against us. Um, and we have to find ways of dealing with it that don't undermine or run counter to our values and don't sacrifice that openness out of fear of something which is hard to assess and hard to measure, but is nonetheless real. So that's the political um, uh, warfare part of things. And I think, again, we're just getting started in thinking through how we deal with that. Um, the technological piece, again, is one where um, awareness of the implications of continuing with the status quo or continuing with the policies that we've pursued up until five, six, seven years ago um, is no longer safe. It's no longer acceptable uh, and doesn't serve our strategic interests and even is damaging potentially to our economic interests. Um, again, we've just started in that relatively brief period of time to scrutinize more closely uh, the investments by Chinese companies in advanced uh, companies in the United States. And it's not just the U.S. The European governments, uh, government in Japan, doing similar things, screening much more carefully these bids or attempts to buy up companies in order to get access to the technology that's embodied in them. 
Um, we've just started to impose serious uh, restrictions on exports of certain products, most notably the sort of high-end semiconductors and the equipment that's needed to manufacture them. Um, we weren't doing any of that until a few years ago. And I think most people who follow this would say, we need to do similar things in other areas of technology, which uh, are at still at the sort of nascent stage or their full implications haven't become clear, but which will have an enormous impact on industry, commerce, but also on national security, like biotechnology as an example, or uh, new and renewable sources of energy, uh, where we've just woken up to learn uh, that we've allowed China to become the dominant processor, if not producer, of a whole array of minerals, uh, which are essential to batteries, which are the key to parts of the, uh, the so-called energy transition. And we did that because it sort of made economic sense. Um, it also made kind of ecological sense from our perspective. Uh, doing a lot of this stuff is dirty and pollutes and why should we do it here in the United States or in the advanced societies? Well, I don't let China do that. But uh, if we do, as we have, we may find ourselves heavily dependent and maybe even totally dependent on China to supply those materials and those products. Um, and you know, one thing we learned in the course of the COVID pandemic is that being dependent in that way on a potentially hostile government for equipment that you need to deal in that case with an infectious disease uh, can be dangerous because they may not give you what you need or they may extract or attempt to extract some benefit from that. Um, and so there's, again, short term is relatively recent, much more awareness of the implications of dependence on uh, China for a variety of materials and manufactured products. There too, we're just at the beginning of uh, assessing what that means and figuring out ways of dealing with it because it will not be cheap uh, and it will involve government intervention. And we have for good reasons tried over the years to limit the extent to which the government is involved in economic planning or um, pumping money into this industry or that. Well, I think we're past that now because we've had to move past it in order to respond to a, to a challenge, a threat from a society that's operating according to very different principles. So political warfare, the technology race, if you like, and also the broader implications of economic interdependence, those are all issues that require more focus and more attention. And um, they require strategy, not just a policy here and a policy there. So to the extent that we've reacted to the growing awareness of those challenges, we've done it in a pretty sporadic way. Activity here, but not there. We don't know, you know, is it going to be sustained? What if there's a change of administration? Will we continue with that? And moreover, in all of those areas, our ability in the United States to respond effectively to the challenges in each of those domains is going to depend on cooperation with other like-minded societies and other advanced industrial democracies. We're not going to be successful in building defenses entirely on our own. Uh, and we've started to cooperate more closely with our friends and allies 
in each of these areas. But we're still at an early stage uh, in, in doing that. And then we face real challenges in each of these areas because of the nature of our political system and because of the nature of our allies and our relationship with our allies. So that's a bit of a, uh, a roundabout answer. But I would say it's kind of, yes, the military, very important, but all of these other things also, and they deserve more attention and more resources than perhaps they've been given. Aaron L. Friedberg is professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. His most recent book is Getting China Wrong, which was released in paperback in August 2023. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.